Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is our premiere episode of Substance. We are a group of five young cultural diplomacy students who created this podcast as a platform to discuss diverse topics that help us understand the world that we are living in today. We explore a variety of hot topics by interviewing professional personnel and discussing the topics ourselves. We seek to find the substance in each topic to discover something new and create further dialogue for our listeners. This first podcast features Mihail Dobre, a former state secretary of Romania and professor for history at Bucharest University. Start off a little bit and tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you well, do. Well, I'm first of all, I'm, I was your professor. Yes. <laughs> I, I I have a double hat because I'm a diplomatic career uh, career diplomat. Sorry, I'm a career diplomat and I'm uh, I'm working with the Minister of Foreign Affairs of my country. Uh, I have a long period there, I, more than 50, 25 years. Uh, I was prepared in the UK. Diplomatic Academy of London sometime in 1992. I'm professionally speaking, I'm basically historian. I studied history completing with diplomatic studies and I have a PhD in international relations. And uh, one of the head is referring to diplomatic activity. The second one is referring to what I do in academia. I'm a professor at the University of Bucharest, Faculty of History. I'm teaching international relations, mainly connecting that with diplomacy, because courses like foreign policy and diplomacy, negotiation and conflicts in international relations, or some other issues related to that. So, in fewer that is what I'm doing, and what I did practically also in the international, in the International Cultural Diploma, Institute of Cultural Diplomacy here in Berlin. Okay, can you please define diplomatic language? Well, you know, there is a great debate about language because it is a great debate about the history of diplomacy. In fact, everything started when diplomacy became an activity, a very distinct activity for state. Diplomacy is not a uh, theoretical uh, uh, aspect of a uh, uh, of activity. Diplomacy is something very much practical. Diplomacy is a tool. It's a tool for a government when the government is supposed to implement foreign policy. A government has internal policy and foreign policy. There are two aspects. The one relating to the context with the overseas actors means foreign policy and the government has diplomacy. That was all the time like that. And when I say all the time, I'm referring to to the time in which practically there were the first resident ambassadors. That means diplomacy means the use of persons sent abroad to represent their own governments and to represent them on a permanent basis. 
It is not similarly similar with the history of mankind. We have a long period in which there were no resident embassies. There were temporary embassies for different reasons. One sovereign sent a person to represent his interests or to send a message or to conclude an agreement or to conclude a marriage or a marriage or something like that, somewhere abroad. But they were temporary. Sometime in late 15th century, early 16th century, there was the push for having resident embassies. The movement started in the Italian world. There was no unified Italy at that time. But started there because there were developed small principalities without capacity to defend themselves, but very much strong in the economic, cultural, and political terms. And they made use of embassies in order to promote their interests. That mechanism developed very much, became a tool also for the great powers, and from that time onwards, practically, all the powers made recourse to diplomacy. In the beginning, there were few diplomatic actors, and those diplomatic actors used the facilities they had, mainly persons, I'm referring to diplomats, persons that were provided by the high class of the society. They were aristocrats, very much well prepared, knowing languages. What languages? Because there were no schools for teaching in foreign languages. It was a lingua franca initially, and it was Latin, because it was the language of the Western Christendom, of the Catholic Church. And that language lasted as a language for diplomacy until, let's say, sometime in the second part of the 17th century, initially, initial part of 18th century. In that time, because there was a strong dominance of the French monarchy in the West, there was a change in lingua franca. French language became the language of diplomacy. And it stayed that way until, at least, until the First World War. If you go to the archives, you may find easily the reports sent back home, but by diplomats, to their authorities. That you will find, strangely enough, that, for instance, the Russian diplomats sent the reports in French, not in Russian. Of course, there are also some other words in Russian, but there was the habit to use French. It was for all. And you may find, very much interesting, different words in French that became, practically, words relevant for diplomatic activity. When you speak about the acceptance of an ambassador, by a country. Of course, you can send an ambassador when the country in which the ambassador is supposed to function is accepted by that country. The accepted by the receiving country is done through a document which is called agreement, which is, which is based on French language. When you speak about the final document adopted by an international conference, it is a final communique, but communique is not from English, it's from French. When you speak about the first diplomatic rank, you know, diplomacy for a diplomat 
is like a structure that is very much similar with the military activity. You start with the lowest rank, which is attaché. To go in increasing your activity towards the ambassador, which is the highest rank. But the first one, attaché, is from French. And there are some others. So there are a number of French words that are and that became practically very relevant for diplomatic activities. You may find them in each and every diplomatic school. When you speak about the most formal and simple diplomatic document, which is, we call it, not verbal. It's not verbal for French. And there are some others. We may continue about the meaning of diplomatic relations. Well, that's very much interesting. When there are few actors coming from the most aristocratic part of those societies, very much well-educated persons, but again, few actors. If you look to the map, you see that political actors, state actors, were few at world scale, and mainly in Europe, to be very honest. Uh, they used different way of different types of language. In general, and I have to quote here a very well-known theorist, a scholar, Harold Nicholson, they, he published a book on diplomacy. It was not only the book on diplomacy, but a very well-known book on diplomacy, saying that practically by diplomatic language you may understand three senses. It is the first sense of that diplomatic language in which, practically, that sense signifies the actual language. That means the one that is employed by diplomatists in their correspondence, in their conversation. Then it is the second sense of language, which, again, Nicholson said, is the one that means those technical phrases that are most common for the diplomatic activity, which practically create a very specific feature for diplomacy. And then he said that there is also a third sense, which in my view is no more there. It is that, to quote in a little bit, in a way, uh, Nicholson, it is that sense that describes a guarded understatement which enables diplomatists and ministers to say sharp things to each other without becoming impolite or provocative. I quoted already one of the words used in time. When in a diplomatic correspondence you may have the formula, uh, the uh, action of a government may be seen by my government as an unfriendly act. You may understand, in accordance with the third sense, that that action may imply a threat of war. Well, that was a part of a different time. I may say also a distant time, in which diplomacy was restricted to limit a limited number of factors. And when, practically, those actors were signaling different points using 
that kind of guarded language. In my view, that is no more there. Now, because the number of factors multiplied a lot. Only in the UN we have 193 member states. That means 193 diplomatic administration in those states, 193 ministries of whatever they name in their interorganization may be. The origin of diplomatists is no more only from the aristocratic ranks of the society. There may, they may be from different other corners. They may have schools of diplomacy. They may not have that kind of schools. So we have a large variety of sources for providing persons for the diplomatic structures. That will have also implication for the way diplomacy uses language in the day-to-day -day activity. Then. It is the mass, the mass communication. You can no more use that. However, diplomacy means, first of all, that protected communication, protected by the secrecy in which diplomacy is supposed to work. Most of the issues that are in the diplomatic service are, of course, from public information. But there is a very important part of activity which is devoted to secret activity, to secrecy. That part will never be shared. That part is restricted to the government, and that part will stay there. It will not be influenced by the very existence of the mass communication systems. Where is it English will remain dominant, or will another okay. one? Okay, in my view, in my view, in my view, English became an important language together with the French. Both of them practically lingua franca of international relations after the First World War. After the Second World War, there is a dominance of English. But pay attention, there is a specificity of international organizations in which you have official languages, like the UN, when you have English, French, you have Spanish, you have Chinese, you have Russian. In, the, in Europe, you have the OAC, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, where there are six official languages. Of course, French, English, then German, Italian, then Spanish and Russian. Then it is the Council of Europe, where there are only two official languages, French and English. So you have a variety of, let's say, organi organizational procedures specifying as well the official languages. But one interesting point, all these international gatherings of international organizations, or there are conferences, they have interpretation. So each and every participant can use a certain number of languages. When the interpretation ends, because of, let's say, it is the end of the time of using those services, but you didn't finish the debate, you didn't finish the negotiation on a certain document, document, and you have to continue in order to reach an agreement, and you don't have anymore the interpretation, in that time there is the use of only, of only one language, which is English. Which means that, okay, we have different languages used in international organizations, so there are different 
language is accepted by international community, but in the end, the language most used in diplomacy remains English language. About the tendency, I may say that we can stay on that path and probably we will still have the possibility to use different languages in international organizations with a specific dominance of English language for the reasons that I already mentioned. And they are very much related to the presence with a centrality in the geopolitical structure of the world of the United States. Mm -hmm. um, can you provide an example where diplomatic language succeeded, but also one where it failed? Like, you can see the improvements, but also the negative effects which the diplomatic language had the effect on the You see, in, in diplomacy, the most important thing is to succeed in communication. Mm -hmm. It is very much important that the message you send is understood by the other side with the meaning that you want it to be understood by the other side. Mm -hmm. You are supposed to have realized real communication when you are sure that your message is understood in the appropriate form. Sometimes in diplomatic activity, you do not rely only on what you say in words. Sometimes you may need to put that on paper. So you multiply the messages or the procedures mainly when adding to what you say during a meeting in a certain Ministry of Foreign Affairs with a non-verbal or another form of document in order to be very much sure that the sense and the content of what you said in the meeting is properly understood by the other side. Uh, what tools like language um, did you use, for example, in Romania during the revolution, if you were active during that time, and what do you use now in modern diplomacy? Well, it's long-distance long period. Uh, Romania has a tradition in diplomacy, uh, in 1989, there was a diplomacy that was entirely formed and dominated by the Communist Party. That was the time. They didn't use anymore the representatives of diplomacy of the regime that was before the Communist time. And therefore, uh, all the persons present in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs were the ones prepared in communist times. Initially, the Romanian Ministry of Foreign Affairs prepared its diplomats in the Soviet Union, mainly in Moscow and Kiev. There were some other places. Sometime in late 1960s, early 1970s, this tendency was stopped also because there was the the great problem that appeared between the Romanians and the rest of the communist countries after the intervention of the Warsaw Pact in Czechoslovakia. And uh, uh, the communist, Romanian communist regime started not to participate in the uh, international maneuvers of the Warsaw Pact, of course fearing that a military presence from that pact in the Romanian soil would have 
triggered practically some political changes in the country. Uh, there was a general framework that practically encouraged the regime not to send the diplomats for their preparation in the Soviet Union. Some of them, but it was not practice. Some of them, especially those those that uh, uh, worked in, in, in Switzerland to the UN Center in, in Geneva, started to prepare themselves in, in the Swiss uh, uh, international centers there. Some of them prepared their PhDs there, but there were only a few and it was something very much isolated. Uh, most of the diplomats that were uh, in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs after early 1970s were prepared in different Romanian schools and that was supposed to stay until the fall of the communist regime. After 1989, there were initial years in which there were different offers from the very well-known international schools in diplomacy offered uh, uh, with scholarships for young Romanian diplomats to go there to prepare them. Uh, they were from France, from the UK, from Spain, from Italy. I was one of those that uh, had the opportunity to be the holder of such a scholarship. I had scholarship from the FCO in the United Kingdom. In the 91-92, I was prepared there in, in London to the Diplomatic Academy of London. So that, that was initially in early 1990s. Then, uh, after some, of year, some years, uh, there was also a Romanian diplomatic school, but that school changed the structure in time, uh, it is still finding or trying to find the appropriate uh, uh, way of expressing itself and organizing itself in order to uh, be in service of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Probably the tendency will be supposed to develop in time. And in the Romanian universities, there is also a tendency to uh, to be very, very much careful uh, to prepare young uh, graduates also uh, in different uh, uh, MA programs that might be related to some sorts of diplomatic activity. There are different programs for BA, but also for MA for international relations and European studies, but also, for instance, in the University of Bucharest, there is a master degree on diplomatic techniques and that is a very interesting tendency. It is supposed to be developed in the future. I may not say a word about the possibility to connect that with some uh, expectations from the uh, uh, Romanian authorities on uh, uh, the management of foreign affairs, but who knows? That will be the part of the future. Okay. Do you have time for one more question? If not, only one because I already called somebody so asked me. Okay. Last question. Do you think it is possible to define democracy irrespective from America's ideology of democracy? Well, democracy is a very old term. Now is applied uh, not in accordance with what democracy meant in the end. Uh, now is applied in accordance with the huge uh, cultural heritage that we have uh, from uh, from the 18th century 
French uh, cultural movement, the Enlightenment. And uh, we have most of the words and uh, the, the, the concepts and the way democracy functions from that time onwards. It is, I don't want to be Eurocentric. Most of it comes from Europe. Of course, US has a huge role in international relations. It's the leading, it is the leading power. It is the strongest country in economic, in military terms. It is a very strong democracy. US, the US had different schools of diplomacy and international relations. But in the end, the economic and military might of the United States is very much dominant, important. But when speaking about democracy, I do believe that that term is not supposed to be dependent of one power or another power. Democracy means, first of all, the adherence of a society of a certain uh, uh, number of commitments uh, which relates to, uh, to the economic life with the full conviction of the functioning of a market economy, which relates to the political life and you cannot be a democracy without of having a free political life which is based, however, on political parties and their functioning. And democracy means, I, mean, I do believe, most of all, and the freedom of the human being. And this is the most important issue, the insurance of the full respect of human rights within society. I don't believe that you should be uh, on, the, on the US line or the French line or the UK line or the German line or something like that. I do believe democracy can be built in a country with full respect with to those very specific provisions related to the functioning of a democracy, also having in mind the specificity of that. I do not believe that countries in some other parts of the world can be, uh, from the, the way in which democracy functions, can be like the countries in Europe or in North America. Of course, they have done that. Those diplomatic uh, uh, procedures and requirements to the specificity of those societies. You cannot move a system from a country in a, very, in a certain part of the world and to implement it as it is in another part of the world. It is not possible. It will not function. First of all, you can you have to invest on the human capital. And that, I think, is supposed to mean a lot of things. Most of all, I do believe democracy means the capacity to ensure the full expression of the freedom of the human being. That's, that is, the, let's say, the most important issue when speaking about the democratic system. It can be afterwards developed in different corners of the society at different levels, but in the end, the human being is the basic thing in this society.
it, it does not depend on the US influence or UK influence, French influence, it depends very much on the full development in that society and the actual implementation of those concepts that are essential for the democratic system. Good morning. Thank, Thank you very, very much. much for <laughs>